0: Hello, and welcome to The History of Philosophy in India, by Jonardin Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Crossover Appeal, The Nature of the Buddha's Teaching. Last time, we looked at the ideas that the Buddha bequeathed to the subsequent history of philosophy in India with his doctrine of no self, the Buddha rejected the Upanishadic idea of a search for the self as misguided. The century and more that the god Indra devoted to that search were a waste of time, since what he was looking for never existed. Yet with the four noble truths, the Buddha implicitly affirmed the Upanishadic conception of philosophy as being about path and purpose. There may be no journey of self-discovery, but there is a journey nonetheless. For the Buddha, the destination is nirvana, the extinction of attachment and desire. This means that the function of his teaching is much like that of the Upanishads, to help the student along a path of inner conceptual development. The Buddha was at pains to ensure that his disciples understood this, which is why he offered two analogies to capture the nature of his own philosophy. He compared it to a raft and to a poisonous snake. Imagine, the Buddha says, that a man builds a raft in order to get across from a dangerous place to a place of safety. He then thinks to himself, This raft has been very helpful to me. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder and then go wherever I want. The Dhamma, the Buddha's teaching, is similar to the raft. It is for the purpose of crossing over, not something to hold on to after you are on the other side. After explaining this, the Buddha tells his students, When you know the Dhamma to be similar to a raft, you should abandon even the teachings. How much more so things contrary to the teachings? What should we make of this? Rafts are great, but only if you're trying to cross a river. When that condition is no longer met, the value disappears. Indeed, the raft becomes an encumbrance. The teachings of the Buddha are apparently the same. They help the student to cross over— to leave behind the world of craving and attachment and reach the state of enlightened life. But when their purpose is finished, the simile seems to imply, the Buddha's teachings are of no further use or value. Attachment in any shape or form is a cause of suffering, and that applies even to being attached to the truth. Charming as it is, the analogy brings with it a problem. It appears to say that the Buddha's teachings are only instrumentally valuable They are useful because they get us where they want to go, but only for that reason, which means that it makes no difference whether they even are true. After all, beliefs don't have to be true in order to be useful, which is why it is the rare parent who doesn't occasionally mislead, if not outright lie to, their children. From Santa will put coal in your stocking if you don't behave, to don't worry, everything will be alright, when sadly it won't. On this account of the Buddha's message, It could even be that the Brahmanic theory of the unchanging self is true after all. It's just that believing in this truth brings suffering with it, so that it is better for us to be convinced that the theory is false. Even worse, we must ask ourselves whether the Buddha knows that his teachings could be untrue. In that case, he wouldn't be merely embroidering a useful story, he'd be telling a lie, albeit a helpful one. Surely, this is not the lesson we should draw from the analogy of the raft. Here we should turn to another passage in which the Buddha explains the status of his teachings. We are in the midst of a dialogue between the Buddha and the prince Abhaya, who asks whether it is proper to utter such speech as would be unwelcome or disagreeable to others. The Buddha replies that he can give no straightforward answer. To explain why, he asks Abhaya what he would do if he saw a child put a pebble in its mouth. The prince replies that he would remove it even if it meant hurting the child. The Buddha then responds with a list of the different possibilities of speech. For instance, he would not say that which is untrue, unbeneficial, and unpleasant to others. Nor would he say what is true, but not beneficial. But out of his famous compassion, he would speak truthfully, beneficially, and agreeably, and he would know the right time to do it. In the Buddha's lists of the types of speech, there's a glaring omission he simply ignores the possibility of speech that is beneficial without being true. This is no oversight, for the case is clearly an awkward one. Apparently, he does not think that lying is always wrong. Otherwise, why mention the unbeneficial lie but fail to mention the beneficial one? The Sri Lankan Buddhist scholar K. N. Jayatilike speculates that for the Buddha, there are no such cases. He suggests that the Pali term beneficial, or atta, means what is morally good in the sense of being useful for the attainment of the goal of nirvana. And since falsehood or the assertion of a statement which is false was considered a moral evil, it would have been held to be logically or causally impossible for what is false, in other words, what is morally evil, to result in what was useful in the sense of being morally advantageous or good. If this is right, then it turns out that there are no white lies, no beneficial untruths. And indeed, the Buddha is said to have discouraged his disciples from lying, without making exceptions for situations where it would be expedient or helpful to do so. Nonetheless, the Buddhist tradition continued to flirt with the idea of compassionate lying. In a later Buddhist text, the Lotus Sutra, we have the parable of a father who gets his children to leave a burning house by promising that there are toys outside. After telling this story, The Buddha says to his interlocutor Shariputra, what do you think? Was the father guilty of falsehood or not? Shariputra responds, no, this rich man simply made it possible for his sons to escape the peril of fire and preserve their lives. He did not commit a falsehood, because if they were able to preserve their lives, then they had already obtained a plaything of sorts, and how much more so when through an expedient means they are rescued from the burning house. And the Buddha agrees. So, in yet another sign of the diversity of the Buddhist tradition, we find conflicting messages about the usefulness of the well intentioned lie. There's yet another issue raised by the raft analogy. So far, we've been talking about the status of the teachings for someone who is in the midst of crossing over to enlightenment. Does it matter whether they're true or not? But one can pose the same question from the point of view of someone who has already crossed over from the point of view of enlightenment. Last time, we talked about the idea that the paradoxical desire to lose all desire could be resolved by supposing that this desire drops away once nirvana is reached. Similarly, the raft analogy seems to say that the Buddha's teaching itself can be left aside after it has served its purpose. This will inevitably put some listeners in mind of Wittgenstein, who encouraged us to see the proposals of his tractatus as a ladder that can be thrown away once one has achieved a full understanding of his philosophy. To use another analogy that appears in Buddhist writings, philosophical instruction could be like a medicine that purges us of our ignorance but is then expelled along with whatever is purged. This way of conceiving the role of philosophy may seem inevitable once we accept that the purpose of philosophical reflection is to bring us along the path to happiness, or what may amount to the same thing, to release us from suffering. After all, what guarantee is there that the beliefs that will make you happy just happen to be the ones that are true? We should not forget, though, that the Buddha traces suffering to attachment, attachment to desire, and desire to ignorance. He seems to presuppose that we will be freed from our worldly predicament precisely by understanding that predicament more fully. To this extent, at least, we can see the Buddha as a bringer of truth, if not as a bringer of straightforward doctrine. The process of enlightenment is a therapeutic one, and brings us to a vantage point that may, in some sense, render the Buddha's teaching otios. Still, there's no denying that it begins by dispelling falsehood. So, The Buddha may, after all, believe that truth will set you free, but that doesn't mean that it will set you free all at once. Just consider, if you listened to the last episode of the podcast, then you know about the Four Noble Truths. Perhaps a little follow-up reading would deepen your grip on the Buddha's teaching, but it looks like you should already be in touching distance of enlightenment. Yet, we know that things are not that easy. It requires lengthy, perhaps lifelong commitment and training to give up on desire and attachment. Understanding the four truths is the easy part, otherwise, we could hardly have explained them in a single episode. The difficult thing is to live accordingly. The Buddha presented another analogy intended to express this point. He said that his teachings are like a poisonous snake. Just as if you want to catch a snake, you have to be careful to take it by the head and not the tail, so one must be careful to take the Buddha's words in the right way. This is a philosophy that bites. It's worth quoting this passage at some length, since it tells us a lot about the way the Buddha wants us to understand and use his message. He tells us that some misguided men learn the Dhamma, or teaching of the Buddha, but do not inquire into its meaning. Instead, they learn the Dhamma only for the sake of criticizing others and for winning in debates, and they do not experience the good for the sake of which they learned the Dhamma. Those teachings, being wrongly grasped by them, conduced to their harm and suffering for a long time. Why is that? Because of the wrong grasp of those teachings. Suppose a man needing a snake, seeking a snake, wandering in search of a snake, saw a large snake, and grasped its coils or its tail. It would turn back on him and bite his hand or his arm or one of his limbs, and because of that, he would come to death or deadly suffering. Why is that? Because of his wrong grasp of the snake. The Buddha's warning to misguided students is the same given by Jack Nicholson in the movie A Few Good Men, You Can't Handle the Truth. The reason they can't handle it is that they expect the wrong thing from the Buddha's teaching. They think that learning is there to make you seem learned, that knowledge is something you show by winning arguments. With the analogy of the raft, we saw that the teaching may in some sense have a merely instrumental value. These misguided students see it that way too, but they are using it as an instrument to reach the wrong goal, hoping that it will help them satisfy the desires for victory and esteem, which ironically are the very sort of desire that the teaching instructs them to abandon. To approach the Buddha's teaching the right way, we need to be open to its power to change our goals and desires, rather than in hopes that it will allow us to satisfy the goals and desires we already have. What should a good teacher do when confronted with students like these who are not ready to learn? Lying is an option we've already considered and found to be problematic, but of course there's another option, remain silent. This is an option the Buddha often chose. It was not of course because he was bested in argument, as happens in the Upanishads which often depict a character falling silent in defeat at the end of a dialectical inquiry. Rather, it is because he knows when speaking the truth will be beneficial and when it will not In the last episode, we mentioned the early Buddhist dialogue, the Milinda Panya, or questions of Menander. At one point in the conversation, the king, Menander, points to an apparent contradiction in reports about the Buddha. On the one hand, it is said that he kept nothing hidden, unlike other teachers who kept things hidden in their fists. On the other hand, we know that he was in the habit of refusing to answer questions. So which is it? Did he teach the truth openly or not? Nagasena, responds that there are four sorts of question. Some call for a straightforward response, some for further clarification, others should elicit a question in reply, and some should just be met with silence. And this makes sense. If someone asks you whether the color blue is heavier than the number four, you couldn't reasonably be expected to give a simple answer. That might be a situation where you should instead respond with another question, such as, what makes you think that colors and numbers have weight? But when would it be right to refuse to respond at all? Nagasena says, There is no utterance or speech of the Buddhas that is without reason, without cause. This suggests that it is up to the Buddha's interlocutor to deserve an answer, or to be in a position where some answer or other would be productive. If he is confronted by someone who only wants to win debates or boast of his enlightenment, Then the Buddha will confront him with stony silence rather than pearls of wisdom. This carefully calibrated teaching strategy may seem like a rather extreme form of tough love, but it is love nonetheless. One might say that compassion is not just a part of the Buddha's teaching, it is his hallmark. For it is this that distinguished the Buddha from others who have achieved enlightenment. He was not content to be liberated himself, but set down a teaching by which all of humankind, be freed from suffering. Here, we reach another puzzle though. The Buddha tells us that we can escape suffering by giving up attachment to things, but why should that lead to, or indeed have anything to do with, compassion? It's clear that a person who abandons desire would refrain from many sorts of wrongdoing. Why kill someone if you have no thirst for vengeance or cheat and steal if you care nothing for wealth? But compassion doesn't mean simply avoiding misdeeds, it means actively pursuing the welfare of others. Is the Buddhist like someone who has confused the first rule of medicine, do no harm, with the whole of the medical enterprise? Certainly not. Buddhist ethical teaching in fact lays great emphasis on what is called skillful action, the sort of action born out of a proper understanding of things, and claims that this will include action that is morally upright and compassionate. This is enshrined in the eightfold path laid down by the Buddha. It begins with right understanding, but does not end there. Rather, one must pursue right speech, right action, and so on, up to the level of right mindfulness and concentration. The Buddhist should of course take the right view upon things, for instance by rejecting the reality of a stable, unchanging self, and seeing that attachment leads to suffering. But that is only the first step, It takes long training and practice to live in accordance with the right view, which is why monasticism plays such a fundamental role and includes such practices as searching self-criticism and obedience to strict rules of discipline. So, good behavior is a crucial part of the Buddhist path. But why exactly? In what way does it free us from suffering? One answer that is prominent in Buddhist literature is that bad deeds will doom you to a worse life in your next reincarnation, Great stress is placed upon action that is punya, or karmically fruitful. A good next life, rather than total liberation, is the goal that is pursued by ordinary Buddhists. It is a feasible goal, and gives the Buddhist a reason to behave well. But, we might object, it is surely the wrong sort of reason. I should not show compassion to others for my own sake, or the sake of my own future self, and not just because I don't have a self but because compassion should be directed towards the good of those for whom I am compassionate. Indeed, the Buddha warns that a truly good action must be performed out of the right motive. That motive should not be desire for a favorable reincarnation. Like all other desires, such a motive would inevitably lead to suffering. If promises and threats concerning the next life do play a role, it may again be like that of the raft, useful for those who are making progress but not for those who have arrived. Might compassion itself be like a raft or ladder that we discard upon arrival? That would be a disquieting thought. Surely benevolence and morality in general should characterize the perfect sage, not be something that the perfect sage has left behind. Yet the Buddhist texts sometimes suggest that this is indeed the case, as when they state that the arhat, meaning someone who has achieved full enlightenment, has moved beyond Punya and is no longer concerned with virtue on the face of it, this seems to clash with the presentations of the Buddha himself and his zeal to help others. But it may be that such passages simply mean that the Arahat is no longer concerned with action in so far as it bears on favourable reincarnation, since he has no desire for this or for anything else, or perhaps the idea is that he need not actively deliberate about his actions since he has reached the state where he just naturally acts well. Or again, maybe we should understand that virtues like compassion take a different shape depending on how far one has gotten along the path. To see why he would in fact act well, we need to go back to the idea of giving up attachment. So far, we've been thinking of this in a purely negative fashion. To abandon greed, for instance, would mean never acting out of greed, or even having greedy thoughts. But consider that the opposite of greed is not the mere absence of greed, it is generosity. The Buddhist rejection of such things as envy, hostility, and greed is meant to bring about positive states of mind that are opposed to these sources of suffering, which seems rather plausible. If you have no desires and are not even committed to the permanence of your own self, you will be much more inclined to share whatever you have. This is the moral counterpart of what the Buddha offers us in terms of our insight into things. When he helps us to banish ignorance, this is not only a matter of giving up false beliefs, but replacing those false beliefs with positive beliefs that are true. And, as we have seen, just as the arahat is ultimately freed even from the exertion that the rest of us devote to being good, so what significance or value the Buddha's teachings have depend on what stage on the path we have reached. Denying that the value of truth is unconditional, ought not to be taken as implying that the truth has a value only if a certain condition is met, and otherwise has no value. Rather, it implies that what value the truth has is dependent on what condition is met. The truth has different values in different conditions. It may still seem a limitation of this ethical theory that it is so centered on the individual. The Buddha seems to have a lot to tell us about how each person should live, and even more about how each person should not live. But doesn't Buddhism also have something to say about how we should live together? Does it, in other words, offer any political ideas, beyond the recommendations and rules governing monastic life? The answer is yes, as we'll see next time by turning to a figure who can fairly be described as a philosopher-king, the legendary Mauryan emperor Ashoka. Ashoka. We'll get into his attempt to rule as a Buddhist and compare his ideas to that of the ancient Indian political treatise, the Arthashastra, next time here on the History of Philosophy in India.